Hi, and welcome back to Conversations with Kevin. Today I have a good person, a good friend, a new friend, Aubrey, and he is a musician, a composer, and an author, and an all-around super great guy that I've just met and very pleased to to have made acquaintance with. So how are you doing tonight? Uh, pretty good, thanks. Pretty good. Awesome. And you had a good day? Uh, managing, yes. <laughs> we all have those days, I know. So uh, I'm going to touch on your music first because that's how I was introduced to you by through your our, our, our common friend James, and uh, you mentioned that you're an astounding musician. And I have to say, I've listened to your music, and I'm very impressed. Uh, it, it, it's got um, a lot of uh, different vibes and feeling in it that really suits what I like, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people as well. Uh, this is a good time if you want to plug your your Spotify and any other things you would like to do about your music before we get started. Well, uh, I guess I'll go from uh, most recent to the past. Okay. The most recent stuff that um, you can find, at least on Spotify, is kind of a strange thing because I'm sort of transitioning uh, into the whole Spotify realm, which is not necessarily a positive thing <laughs> in terms of you know, what the industry has done to musicians. Just so you know out there, it's rough on Spotify. Yes. Big ones are not making very much money. No. So it's become sort of a platform, almost like it's a social media platform, actually. And it's more about promoting your music rather than, you know, used to be commerce. Mm. It's troublesome because it's very expensive to make music. but. We can talk about that later. Uh, for now, you can uh, find uh, a band that I've worked up with a partner of mine here in Toronto called 13 Go. And uh, that one's uh, the, the last one we did, and it was um, it was produced by Vernon Reed from Living Color. Uh, Vernon's been a friend of mine since, uh, oh, geez, about 20, 22, 23 years now. And I used to live, we used to live very close together when I lived in, in New York. And, uh, you know, we play in a blues group called Memphis Blood, um, James Blood Omer featuring Vernon Reed. And um, so that's the last one that I'm quite proud of. And it, we finished it just before the pandemic. We had a, a, a release party here in Toronto. Uh, with Vernon, and it went really well. And then everybody stayed in their house for a couple of years. <laughs> so that was that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I am slowly trying to um, re-release it. Oh, good idea. I'm re-releasing it, even though it was made pre-pandemic. It's the music. It's like new, really. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, see what we can drum up from that. Also working on more of a jazz project called uh, Threefold with a friend of mine here in Toronto and a bass player from New York named Calvin Jones. And that's a straightforward thing. That, straight ahead, I should say, that one hasn't been released yet. So that's in the works for this year. Um, also, so the music you probably listen to is from way back when, you know. Uh, that was the uh, ID one? Right, called My Id. My Id, sorry. Right. And, Id. That, and that was, uh, I did uh, how many records under My Id? One, 
two, three. I did three records under Maya. A live recording called Live Revival uh, featuring Vernon Reed. Uh, Maya featuring Aubrey Dale. And also one called Jewel. And um, so those are the Maya project. It's also another project called On Topic. And that's another record that we did somewhere in the, I think, 2015 or so. And uh, that one's a nice one, too. That, that I, I'm not sure if that one's on Spotify. I think it is. <laughs> I have to look. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think they got it up there. So those are at least the projects that I'm involved in. Otherwise, I'm working with Shakura Said. Actually, I was in Montreal last, last uh, March, I think it was. In Montreal at um, Upstairs, which is downstairs. <laughs> I don't know if you, you've been there? You've been upstairs? No, I've heard of it, though. Yes. Yeah, upstairs. And uh, blew that place up. So that was, that was cool. She's a pretty great singer. And um, so I'll be doing some more traveling with her this year over to Europe and across the country. This one, I think we're doing some stuff in the States as well. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much going, what's going on with, you know, the playing, the creative playing that I've been doing lately. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I, I heard the, um, the id, uh, that, that really impressed me. Oh. Um, there was a lot of nuances in it that were very, like, that I appreciate. And so I, I did enjoy that a lot. I had it blaring in my uh, big sound system in the living room for about an hour and different stuff. And I actually played the, uh, is it Jenny? Oh, Janice. Janice. I played that like three times. Oh, nice. I really enjoyed that. Oh, um So what inspired you to to do music? Like, where did it start? So with me, uh, I've been playing since I was a kid, since mm-hmm. I was five years old. Uh, my mom, you know, was so I'm an immigrant from Jamaica, my family, and we moved from uh, Jamaica, Kingston, Jamaica, to uh, Rycroft, Alberta. So way up north in Alberta. Mm-hmm. And uh, a bit chilly up there. A bit chilly. <laughs> So we made there. My mom was a high school teacher. Cool. She uh, uh, she got this gig teaching up there. So then uh, she went first, and then my dad brought us with him. And you know it was very remote, and he was not happy about that. So he had a buddy in Montreal who was in commercial real estate, and uh, off he went to Montreal. So. Right around the same time, my mom had a childhood friend friend in Montreal, and she said, hey, they got school boards looking for teachers here, too. So finally, we all got over to, to Montreal, to Pointe Claire. And, oh, cool. Uh, yeah, and that's where I grew up. So uh, it was a cheap way, to answer your question more directly, it was a cheap way for an immigrant family to teach their kid music, right? Uh, and I, I, and that, that way was to, they got me an accordion and my sister a guitar. So we would take music at the, uh, at the, you know, local music shop down the lakeshore. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, the Quebec Conservatory of Music sounds very official. 
It was just yeah. some guy's business, you know, but, <laughs> but it was cool. You know, I, I, I play accordion from five to about 11, 12. And I got pretty good at it. You know, I never really liked the instrument that much, you know, like it's one of those things, you know, instruments choose you, you don't choose them, you know. I agree. But I learned a fair amount about music, at least. So it was very natural to me. And um, then uh, when I was around, yeah, like 13 or so, a friend of mine was putting together a band. <laughs> like, like he's not, he wasn't a musician. He was just a friend who, like, like almost like this is, this would be a cool thing to do today. <laughs> Let's yeah, yeah. They're a rock band, you know? So, mm-hmm. so he, he started assigning instruments to people and I was assigned the drums. Uh, and, uh, you know, Glenn had this friend of mine, Glenn, Ben Richardson had, had, a a guitar and Lucas guitar and another friend of mine and Andy Jameson just happened to have this hacky bass guitar and an amp, I guess. And he just, I don't know how he got it, but he had it. And I bored another friend's bass drum, snare drum and a pedal with some sticks. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, never looked back. <laughs> what were you playing in this band? What kind of music? What songs do you remember? Elvis. The songs? Elvis. Yeah. Wow. Heartbreak Hotel. That was interesting. Yeah, Elvis. Yeah, we learned that. And, uh, you know, it wasn't too long after that. We started to, you know, rehearse regularly. And, you know, I got my first drum set for Christmas that year and, you know, started learning. Uh, what was that? So that would have been like 1978. Uh, yeah, so like the Ramones. And, oh, yeah. Kiss. Uh, what else did we start learning at that time? You know, even like a little bit of, uh, you know, pseudo disco hits, you know. We oh, really? Practicing. Do you remember any of those songs? Because I, I, I'm curious. Oh, you remember this, this song called Shame? Shame, 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 shame. Yes. <laughs> we, we played that one. Oh, that's cool. You can't dance too. <laughs> that's funny. So you played that. <laughs> And, and then as, as you know, as, as your technique gets better, you start trying more challenging stuff. So I started getting the, into Led Zeppelin and I got really big into Led Zeppelin for a while. Well, now you're a best friend. You're one of my best friends. <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, John <laughs> I'm Bonham. a huge Zeppelin fan and, and John Bonham is probably one of my favorite drummers to listen to. Probably not the most technical and most skilled oh, drummer, but I just that. love his sound. That's not true. Bottom's got very good technique. He's got really, yeah, yeah. He's real. He's got actually pretty great technique. You know, he's a really strong blues drummer. You know, and he's able to. They were able to, you know, take all those, take all that black music and run with it. You know, it's the nature of the time, nature of the day, Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it's an old story (laughs) that's been repeated. Over and over again, and yeah. today. Well, I watched the um, the first impression video, and it was an R and B guy who never heard Led Zeppelin before. Oh yeah, yeah. And he was listening to uh, "Your Time Is Going to Come," right? And he said, "I feel like I'm in a church down south." 
He goes, and then he says, Flat sounds like a, a an old black guy. He doesn't sound like a white guy. And he was a really he was really impressed by it. And it's funny that you mentioned that they they retooled that old music. And there's there is a lot of um classic old style blues influence in them. They they didn't do the the standards, you know what I mean? They they did more deeper cuts, you know what I mean? Well, all the, all the British invasion was a bunch of young Brits wishing they were young black kids in America. Exactly, <laughs> but they actually. Yeah. Wished. I agree but with they that. Weren't. They yeah. weren't. They who they were who they were. Yeah, they were able to do their best to copy that music. Yeah, and like with many cool things that come out of emulation of something a little different was created. Yeah. They missed the mark and ended up creating the Rolling Stones. You know, yeah, exactly. The ended yeah. up creating the Beatles. They missed the mark. And, and that was very, that was a constant thing. Yeah. And of course, because the way the world was, white music's always promoted more. Yes. No, I understand that. Yeah. So that's why they became so successful. The Rolling Stones, however, were very good for drawing attention to the originals. Which yes. I thought was a great thing. And that's Mick, you know. I think he's yeah. always sensitive to that. That, you know, yes. Mighty Waters come up and or John Lee Hooker. He would make sure that everyone knows this is the dude, not us. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, I've heard a lot of stories about the Stones and their integration, and, and they even brought musicians with them that were yeah. not supposed to be playing with white people. And that, and it was controversial back then, and, and well, they just did it because that's what they wanted to do. And, they were and I, I respect that. That's pretty cool. They refused to play for segregated Pauls and all kinds Yeah, that's right. And that's that was, that was well, I don't think Britain had the same issues as the U.S. as far as stuff like oh, that, as far as historically it speaking. Had the same issues. It had the same They did, yeah. I, I'm not, no, I don't know the issues in oh, England, yeah. so I, I'm just it guessing. It was just different. It was different, okay. It was, it was different, you know, okay. it's a different place that people, yeah. and also the fact that it's a, like the Commonwealth Nations were coming into the country. Mm-hmm. They felt inundated. But hey, you're the you're you're the queen. You asked us to. <laughs> you know, we're your subjects. You can't turn us away. Sorry. I know, right? Don't conquer us then next time. <laughs> Don't. No, no, yeah, that could be a whole other show because it's 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 insane. Yeah, but, but, um, but still, I mean, I, I think it's something that the world's going to have to always. Yeah. End with right. Yeah, so exactly. anyway, getting back to influence. <laughs> yes, I was going to ask you what your favorite band was growing up. Like, what? Growing up? Yeah, when you were a teenager. That's really hard because, um, you know, uh, the more I learned, the more I realized I didn't know. Yes. And that and that stays true to this very second, you know. Like, I could say the same about guitar. I, I, the more I play, the more I realize how much I don't know. Yeah. So as a result, you know, I, I stopped trying to say this is my favorite because there was always something uh, just as fascinating around the corner. So mm-hmm. it was like having a collect, it's like having a really nice collection. I, I'd rather think of it that way. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I like, agree. Like if you have, if you collect cars, right? Then, you know, well, I got this Ferrari. Yeah, but I got this. This uh, this Porsche. Oh, but I got yeah. the Rolls Royce, and like they're all cool cars. True. By the way, I have none of those cars. No, <laughs> but, neither, you know. neither do I. Right? 
But you know, but you see the example is like you can't say necessarily like, wow, like that Ferrari is so much better than this because it's different, mm-hmm. different high high level car, you know, or that yeah. whatever that that Lamborghini is absolutely better than this. So because no, they're all they're all amazing in their own way. So that's kind of how honestly, I, it's very hard for me to answer that question. I used to listen to. When I was a teenager, primarily, I, I tell you, I used to listen to, uh, I mean, off the top of my head, like the, well, I always had at least five different groups going at a time. So in the early days, it was mostly rock music because that was the easiest for me to understand on the drums. And, um, you know, I really enjoyed Van Halen and Led Zeppelin and Rush. Um, and uh, Black Sabbath, you know. I was a big Zap- Sabbath fan myself. Yeah, and I thought all the, the drummer, especially the rhythm sections, bass and drums, were, and all those bands were just phenomenal. And and I could sort of understand pieces of what they were doing, and slowly my vocabulary was starting to get uh, better. Uh, and then uh, also at the same time, I was my sister introduced me to. Um, to Max Roach, you know, Max Roach and Anthony Braxton. So, you know, she bought, she, there was that, and then she bought me this record called Drum Night at Birdland. And that was uh, Philly Joe Jones, um, Charlie Persip, Elvin Jones, and Art Blakey. For those who really are steeped in, in jazz and jazz drummers, that's like the pinnacle of drumming from the... Uh, 1940s through the late 60s, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that stuff was like, wow, okay, I let me listen to this, put that away for a while because I have no idea how that's what's going on over there, and then I would I would dip back in as I got better, and slowly I started to understand what they were doing and how to get that sound, and you know by that time I think is when I met Jamie. That's yeah, I sort of come to that point when I went to Vanier and uh, started to understand how how that works. So then my my tastes all changed, you know. Yeah, I listened to less rock and started to venture towards the thing, the unknown. Like, what is that? Oh, I saw also I used to like Jethro Tull a lot as well, because mm. you know, pretty interesting playing. You know, so then I started listening to bands like Brand X. And, and uh, Return to Forever and the Mahavishnu Orchestra, uh, you know, more fusion things, Chick Korea's groups. Yeah. Weather Report. Oh, I, yeah, that's good. I like that. That's so why I started to really figure that stuff out and mm-hmm. you know, start to emulate it and take vocabulary from that and listen to that incessantly to help build up my playing. Um. And, and then, then funny enough, I, I kind of stopped playing the drums for a while. I went to McGill University, oh, yeah. only studied classical music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, for 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 that uh, three year period, I was listening more like to Stravinsky and Shostakovich, Tchaikovsky. You know, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of different composers, modern composers. And, and playing at McGill, uh, you know, it, it was cool because you got to do 
some professional work as well. So I was part of the McGill Percussion Ensemble under Pierre Belouge. And that was uh, very intense, <laughs> to mm -hmm. say the least. And I learned a lot. And technically, especially, you know, this and musically reading. And, uh, you know, we used to do CBC gigs. And that's kind of when it started to become very real suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I never learned is how to read or write music. I'm, I play by ear. I'm the least musician musician you'll ever meet. You're saying. <laughs> yeah, I'm well, totally. all like that, really. I'm an improv uh, person. I'm an intuitive player. But um, when I jam with real musicians, and I say real musicians because I don't consider myself a real musician. I, I'm more of an art person. Like I, To me, it's like art for me. And when I play with other people, I don't speak the lingo. But I can follow along and, and fit in. I just don't speak the lingo, you know? Right. Well, I mean, uh, I play with all kinds of musicians, you know. I play with musicians who, you know, will just get a book and will read the book, you know. So I play at that level. But I also play with a lot of people who don't know anything about music, but they make great music nonetheless. I'm making a record mm -hmm. right now with uh, a guy named Dan Chasen. It's his project. And the music's really good, uh, but he's not like a real state musician, but he sings great and writes really nice, cool songs, kind of roots rock, a little bit of funk in there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think I think the, the key to being a, a strong side man is being able to be flexible. Yes. You know, so that if a situation is like very book oriented where you just read and get through it, you're able to make that sound really good. And if a situation is, you know, purely the opposite of that, then you still want to make it feel very organized and sound great. And, you know, so that's the challenge. Um, yeah. So, uh, so I, I got through the gill and then went to America after that, you know, I, oh, really? I should also back up and say that when I was in Vanier, you know, with uh, with with James and a guy named Ronnie Page, he he was pretty significant in my life as well. Just, I think I think in terms of getting me focused and very serious about practicing, and and I practiced before, of course, but uh, I think he just got me uh, a little more organized about it, and also set some had me set goals that I, that I strive to achieve uh, musically and technically and that served me well going forward you know and he lost Ronnie quite young he was only in his early 50s I think when he passed that's sad it was just rough yeah it's rough on everybody mm -hmm. um, but um, but yeah so McGill was great got through that in classic music then started to venture back into drums because while I was at McGill I did sort of sneak into the big band <laughs> and ended up I ended up playing playing in the big band. And, I like big band music. Yeah, it was cool. And Yeah. I mean I'm very cheesy. I love the Glenn Miller band. I just love all that stuff and Buddy Rich and all yeah. that that you know the genre it's i'm not very well versed on the big band stuff because i can't say i can name off albums and stuff like that but what i've heard and what i hear when i put it on like a a random spotify big band thing and not really pay attention to who's playing i just i just really enjoy it 
Yeah, I mean, big bands is an extensive thing. Of course, it has. You mentioned the traditional ones from the 1930s and 40s, but of course, the art form continued despite the crushing expense of it, and it's something that uh, that uh, students study in school. Mm-hmm. You know, something that because it's it's great for reading and it's a style that will serve you well. You know, in terms of uh, being able to deal with studio playing and orchestral playing and ensemble playing in general. So they use it as a, as a creative outlet in school and also as an educative one as well. So I did that and uh, moved to America to go to Manhattan School of Music, where I studied with uh, John Riley and um, you know, slowly weighed my way into the New York scene. <laughs> wow, that's really cool. Well, well, since you were in New York and you did a lot of sessions, I imagine. Uh, well, a fair amount. It wasn't. It wasn't. You know, the like I think everywhere in the world, the the, the at the time. So I went to America in the late eighties, like nineteen eighty eight. Mm-hmm. So the rhythm sections, a lot of electronic music was happening. Uh, the home studio starting to come together. Yeah. Not as we think of it now, but you know people were starting to gather gear and be able to create things on their own. So the reason I'm saying that is like, you know, in the 1970s, 60s, 70s, if you wanted to record something with a rhythm section, you had to hire a rhythm section. Yeah. Like you had to hire, like if you wanted just like a, a one minute spot to sell hamburgers, mm-hmm. you had to hire a drummer and a bass player. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like you couldn't just make the music happen. Like, you, but then eventually you got to the point where, you know, one guy could make it sound like this rhythm section. It might yeah. have been easy, but that didn't matter. In fact, it became a style. You know, it became a style on the eighties. <laughs> cheesy rhythm section sound. Yeah, that's right. I, I remember in '86 when I first got my my real job, which I just retired from after 35 years. Okay. Um, one of my first expenses was a Fostex 484 track eight line mixer. There you go. And, um, I, boy home. <laughs> I bounced those tracks like, you know, like it was nobody's business. And I just did some recordings because before that, what I had done is I bought myself a double tape deck that had a, yeah. um, uh, um, you could, you can copy from one tape to the other, but you could also put a microphone. So while you're copying from one tape to the other, you can overdub. Overdub. Well, so like, you're digging deep. <laughs> that was my first experience at about 16 was a uh-huh. double tape deck that I could overdub. And then I finally got the money after a good job when I was 20 and bought the Fostex. So I, I was just saying that because you mentioned the home recording and I, exactly. I was at the, you know, the beginning of all that and doing that at home. And now I got this whole studio here and I got 20 lines in and endless tracks. And and it's incredible what we can do today, you know, for much less money. So Mm -hmm. as a result, you know, so, you know, to answer your questions about doing sessions and stuff, there were just, there was less of it. Mm -hmm. That's really what I'm saying. But, you know, I did, I did a fair amount. I made a fair amount of records did a few jingles here and there, but I would say most, most of what I did now in America, most of it was, was touring. I toured a lot, I toured, toured especially Europe, did Europe, I did uh, Japan, uh, did a lot of America, around America. Mm-hmm.
your favorite gig? And let's say in those days, what out of all, you know, touring Europe and America, what gig stood, stood out in your mind or stands out right now? As I ask you, that's funny. You know, uh, they're all, they're, they're all great. Mm -hmm. And I was very lucky to, I think to, to be with people who treated me pretty fairly for the most part, you know, and, uh, I, I didn't, there can be real horror stories out there. Mm. You know? uh, and I, I felt that, uh, so, so that I'd say everybody was great. Um, again, it's kind of like when you ask me what's your favorite band, you know, I, I had to categorize them, you know, cause some of them, uh, there's one group that we opened up for Peter Gabriel. Oh, nice. Secret World Tour, and that one was called Hassan Hakmoon and Zahar, and that was a uh, a North African group, and you know it was full of people that I had recruited into the band, and the leader of the band was a really good friend of mine. So there was a bit of a brotherly connection in the group, okay. you know, us against the world kind of thing, you know. And it's a big ticket too, so that's pretty sweet. Yeah, so we we uh, there's actually footage of that band. Uh, if you look up, yeah, I think if you look up Hassan Hakmoon and Zahar Woodstock '94, that should get you on on YouTube. That should get you that that show we did. Mm -hmm. and, um, so like that that group was in terms of having a a, a connection. They could have been my favorite in that respect. Mm -hmm. The respect of really getting me into the scene, you know, with like players at a much higher level, I would say that would be James Blood Ulmer. Uh, I toured a lot with him through Europe, Australia, um, yeah, all over America. And that was sort of like a, a blues slash avant garde type thing, but more on the blues side, pretty aggressive. Uh, and uh, it was it was challenging playing. I got to do lots of drum solos and stuff like that. And that's cool. Always funny. And made a few records with him. Uh, mm -hmm. A nice record that I like is called uh, Live. It's James Blood Ulmer live at the Bayerischerhof. And, that, and the Bayerischerhof is a swanky hotel slash jazz club in Munich, Germany. And uh, that one, that one came out real good. Uh, I'm actually, that was the first time <laughs> it was, I'd done, I'd done recordings before that, you know, records. And they were, they were good, but I always, I think I felt like I was trying to prove something, you know, okay. when you're young, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah for sure. Trying to, trying to prove to myself that I have what it takes, try to prove to other people that I have what it takes. So in my mind, when I hear it now, it sounds a little, a little young. And I always felt there was something off about my recordings, but that that live recording at the Bayerischhof was the first one where I felt like, "Wow, I think I figured this thing out." <laughs> you know, I think I, I think I know how to make. All right, I think I got what to do. Like my state of mind, like how I should be when recording, whether it be live or in a studio, just the energy. And and and, and I think I was right. I haven't thought like I, it helped a lot going forward after that. You know, um, and then I did a really nice a touring thing with a, a, a harp player named John Popper. Uh, John Popper is the head of a band called Blues Traveler. And there's probably some fans up here of that group. 
and um, that was cool because that was at, at the next level up. Like we were doing like Letterman and and Tonight Show and that whole Hollywood thing. You know, oh, that's really cool. And um, and that whole all that and you know tour buses and planes and craziness, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, I mean, mostly state for that one, it was all America. So I saw a lot of America that, that period. You've done some extensive work with some, I would say, very important, uh, people and places and shows. That's, that's, uh, I'm very impressed. That, that's, that's cool. I mean, it was, it was, a uh, it were heady days. We'll say it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was young. It's quite an accomplishment to have been through that. I mean, you know, just being on Letterman is is it's a big it's a big thing, you know, as far as popularity goes. And those things were intense. They were intense. And Tonight Show was that that was with Johnny Carson then when that was he was in there at the Uh, time. No, Johnny was gone by then. Okay, Uh, it was Jay Leno. Jay Leno. Well, still no slouch, you know, in the big business. That's uh, that's that's an impressive uh, venue. Yeah, it was good. And, you know, we did a lot of touring with them. And then I did some, uh, another group called God Street Wine, which was part of the jam band scene as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, otherwise, you know, people would hire me just to swing over to France to do a gig or like, like hit, hit, and, hit it and quit it and call it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, played with a, a gospel choir in New York City. Just a bunch of stuff. It was I was always running. <laughs> mm. So what, where do you see your music going now in, in the future? What's your plans? Like, what's your 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 vision? Well, you know, um, honestly, 13 Go is something I had a lot of hopes for, you know, okay. to try to get out doing the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was nice to be able to, to, to do that thing at uh, Jazz FM the other day, which came out mm-hmm. pretty cool. And uh, and I'm starting to work with some people who think they can. They're the ones who suggested to re-release it, and working with some people who are trying to kind of, you know, bring it to the forefront and make a a headline project in the country. It was all I felt like it was poised to do that. We mm-hmm. got great reviews for the record. We got great reviews for the show. I felt like we we're right on the cusp of like, okay. Boom! We'll start booking this group across, and and the pandemic showed up. So yeah. that's one thing that I'd like to try to pick up the pieces from. And it's it's tough, you know. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I'm, I I do a lot of drum clinics, so okay. uh, I'm going to try to keep keep that going uh, this year. Uh, and uh, you know, as far as as far as the near future, it's basically thirteen go. And uh, threefold, you know, play mostly that music, and then continuing to work with Shakira Saida. I'm probably going to maybe try to get her on some of some new music tracks, you know. Um, and I, I think I told you before that I I've just finished, uh, you know, we just submitted the the text, the manuscript to be laid out and printed for this book on Narda. My yeah. Book. And that is encompassing. Like, it's like, it was, it's a, it was a, so that's, that's why it's almost strange to think 
mostly about music again because I was so in that world, you know, just trying to get get the book done. Um, started, what inspired you to write a book? How did that come about? Well, that that is a kind of it's even in, I even tell the story in the book. Okay, <laughs> interesting. So, give us a preview of what's in the book by well, telling us now. Well, first of all, the the book is well. Well, let me back up. Nardo Michael Walden is uh, one of the drummers uh, who was one of my favorite drummers. Like you asked about favorite drummers, right? Mm -hmm. One of my favorite drummers because he played in the second incarnation of the Mahavishnu Orchestra. And the first incarnation was the great Billy Cobham, who was also a hugely influential drummer for me and the rest of the world, including Nardo Michael Walden. So I, you know, a friend of mine hit me to Billy Cobham with Mahavishnu. I bought those records, the Inner Mountain Flame and, and uh, Birds of Fire. And then uh, so this other record called Visions of the Emerald Beyond, I, I just snatched it up, you know, got home, put it on the turntable. I was like, oh, my God, listen to that. I thought, wow, Billy is killing on this one. He's like, wow, fire. I look on the back and there's... <laughs> It's like he was very he was very thin in those days. A little, he looked like a child. <laughs> you know? it, was, it was like this big grin playing his butt off. And I was like, "What? Another one?" You know. So then I started to really get into Narda and checking out what he's been doing. He played on Jeff Beck's. You know, Jeff Beck Wire. That's a pretty positive. That's a popular, uh, probably one of his best albums, yeah. Yeah, and, and Narda wrote about four of those songs. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm a big Jeff Beck fan. I, I think he's probably the the best um, commercial guitarist, because there's a lot of great guitarists we don't even hear of, obviously. Yeah. But his he's so unique, and his style and his control of the instrument technically is superior than most guitarists, you know. Yeah, a lot of guitarists consider him the best guitarist because of his technique and his sound. I, um, I've i heard several guitar uh, musicians, sorry, uh, John, Bobby, John Bon Jovi being one of them, and uh, Roger Waters, who he's played on their albums, say that he would go to the... He, Roger Waters called him up in New York City when he was doing one of his albums. Uh, I think it was Radio uh, Chaos. And Roger Waters called him up and he said, do you want to come and do a, a solo on one of my songs? What God Wants is, is actually what it's called. So he said, sure. He goes, I don't have my stuff with me. And he goes, let me just go to the music store. He went to the music store. He picked it up off the rack, diddled on it, put it in the box. Didn't have it set up or anything, which usually when you buy a guitar, you have it set up, you know. Sure. Took the guitar, brought it, plugged it into whatever amp was there, and blew his solo away, blew everybody away with his solo. And he sounded like Jeff Beck. Mm -hmm. And John Bon Jovi said the same thing. He took a, a box, an unopened box, a brand new guitar, plugged it into whatever amp, and he sounded like Jeff Beck. So 
the reason why I'm saying this is that he had this ability to sound like himself on any piece of equipment. It doesn't have to be his guitar and his amp, which makes him a special guitarist as far as, you know, a recording session guitarist. I mean, he, he can basically show up and just play anything and, and whatever. Yeah. And not only that, the way he controlled his guitar was just phenomenal. So, yeah, yeah. Jeff Beck was that, big influence on me. Guitar was just phenomenal. So, yeah, yeah. Jeff Beck was that, big influence on me. Yeah, I think a lot of that's because he's a uh, he's like he's like James Blood Almer in that it's all it's all meat. It's all yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's when it's all meat, that means it's going to be a very personal touch. Yeah, it's you. And, that's right. Uh, another thing that uh, Narda hit me to when he records, he'll bring like you know twenty guitars to a session, right, and line them up. So they'll they'll go through the they'll play the song, he'll play it on one guitar just to play it to get the vibe and you know just to play it. Mm-hmm. But then he'll go back through it, depending on the song. He'll go back through the song and section by section, he'll go okay, hold on a second, let me play, let me play the bridge. Okay, hold on, and he'll start going through guitars, so he finds the right sound, the right. Yeah. And then play that, or and mm-hmm. the same thing with the solos too. So he'll piece, to, he'll comp together a performance using different guitars or different sections. Yeah, that's how much of an artist he was. And that get that gets to your point that it's not the guitar that makes him sound like him. The guitar does have a sound, mind you. Yeah, but he sounds like himself in that sound. You know, yeah, that. no matter what he picks up, he sounds like himself. You know exactly. Yeah. So so basically, Narda. Uh, you know, he went on to to become one of the world's greatest producers. You know, he produced Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from his great drumming, you know, which is which is legendary and is, he's produced Whitney Houston, who produced Aretha Franklin, uh, Patti LaBelle, uh, Sting. Uh, just like, <laughs> like that's, that's quite an impressive list yeah. just right well, that, there if you stop that. there it's impressive you know mariah carey uh, oh my god like if you go into like when you go into the studio his front room is just gold and platinum records everywhere nice so, so he's had 57 number one hits in his life that's impressive yeah and and uh, he's kind of a genius like that and and a great great drummer so uh always been a fan and i uh during the pandemic, uh, I, you know, we had a lot of time in our hands. No one was doing anything, going anywhere. That's so for sure. I decided I was going to go back in time and tr- transcribe. I've been really into transcribing in the last maybe eight, nine years, ten years, you know, all kinds of things. If, it's, if it interests me, I'll transcribe and I'll learn and go, oh. Okay, that's interesting how that works. That's very cool. The transcript. Mm-hmm. So I decided uh, I'm going to have some extract from the Mount Vishnu Orchestra. And um, you, can, you can YouTube that and check that out. And I transcribed it and I performed it like I played it. And then I broke it down like, hey, check out this section and check out this section. And look what he does here and look what he does here. And I play little examples. And I put it up on YouTube. So I started doing that with a lot of different drummers, you know, like uh, Art Taylor, Neil Peart, uh, all kinds of people started doing that. And then um, a friend of mine in Philadelphia, 
uh, Grant Calvin Weston, a drummer, great drummer, heard it, and he was like, dude, someone's going to call you. <laughs> and sure <laughs> enough, the next day, an inbox, there's Narda Michael Walden emailing wow. Hey, man, thanks. That's awesome. Blah, blah. So we struck up a friendship at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and then I started, I says, you know what? I'm going to do a couple more for you. What else do you want me to do for you? Right. So I did, uh, I did play with me, which is on Jeff Beck Wired. And I did, mm-hmm. uh, you turn these, like about two, three other Mahavishnu, two more of Mahavishnu tracks. And then he says, you know what would be really cool? Why don't, why don't we collaborate on a book? I thought, I could do that. Not really. <laughs> Thinking I could. <laughs> I could do that. And then, and then, like, it was one of those things that the more you talk about something and the more you do, because I'd already transcribed, like, a lot of stuff already. It was, like, three pieces or something, four pieces. And, uh, and I, I thought hard about it. I was like, no, I actually could do that, you know? So we, I said, let's, get, let's put down a list of, the, of your legendary songs and I'll start to work on transcribing them, you know? So, so we wrote down 14, uh, 13 songs between Weather Report, Jacob Astorius, Mara Vishnu, uh, Jeff Beck. And I just got into it, you know? And that took me a few months to get through mm-hmm. all of that, right? And, uh, and then, uh, you know, he, Nara's one of these people who seems to know everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, connected me with the publishing company with Hudson Music. And, uh, you know, they liked me and they liked what I was doing. And it's just been a, you know, this is one of those things you, you scratch away at it, right? Do a little bit of it. Yeah. So through Zoom, Zoom interviews, and I went to San Francisco where his studio is um, okay. uh, last year and hung out for like, you know, three or four days. And just picked his brain and we played and, you know, all of that it was very cool. And um, with all that information, I was able to write the book. And the book is full of, you know, his backstory, some bio. It's not like a biographical book, you know, but it has a nice bio section. So you get a sense of where he came from, what was happening, like how he got his name. And, and I'd go through each of the songs, break them down and give you a, a rundown of, you know, how the song's put together, some anecdotes and stories, you know, behind the scenes stories that are kind of interesting, especially if you're a fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the transcriptions with, I also have a, a video component where I, I, I recorded videos of myself playing all of the intricate sections that line up with each of the examples in the book. So if you're on, if you're on Jacob Pistorius, come, uh, come on, come over, you know, I have like, you know, uh, 1A, main groove, and then have the video, main groove, and you can see me play the groove fast, slow, and read it. So there's a bit of an educational point of view as well. So hmm. so that's happened. So I did a lot. <laughs> so, Sounds so, like you were busy. Yeah, it took me about 18 months, a little more than 18 months total to do everything. And so it's and just... And when is this coming out? Well, like I said, they're they're you know they're putting it into the layout uh, today. As a matter of fact, oh so nice. He said generally it, it'll probably be about two and a half months. Okay. So something like depending on what kind of backlog there is at the printer. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm pretty excited about it. You know, I, the, the people at Hudson Music are very happy. And that's, that was what I was most, because they do it all the time, you know? So for a first book, I'm glad I was able to please the publisher. <laughs> yeah. with you on many levels and uh, oh, you. you're a very interesting person uh, actually I, I'm not a big reader because I'm dyslexic and I find it very challenging but I think I will make an effort to uh, well, definitely read that yeah but the other thing about it too which is interesting you mentioned that is that there's, I mean it's also a picture book it's also like a coffee table so lots of pictures oh, cool. of him in his past and like I said there is the there is the video component Nice. So you can sort of, you know, you can kind of like at that level, at least you can say, OK, that's that's that. Oh, that's how he does that. If you were a drummer, for instance. So that's of interest. Cause I knew that not everybody reads music, you know, but they that's want true. to know what's going on. So that's why I want to make sure to offer that. You know, I don't even I don't, I'm not sure how far these guys go if they do any audio books or anything. I'm not sure about that. I've. We'll see. Maybe. Maybe they'll want me to read. Sounds like you were busy. Yeah, it took me about 18 months, a little more than 18 months total to do everything. And so it's just... And when is this coming out? Well, like I said, they're, they're, you know, they're putting it into the layout uh, today, as a matter of fact. Oh, nice. He said generally it'll probably be about two and a half months. Okay. So something like, depending on what kind of backlog there is at the printer. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty excited about it. You know, I, the, the people at Hudson Music are very happy. And that's that was what I was most because they do it all the time, you know. So for a first book, I'm glad I was able to please the publisher. <laughs> yeah. That's that's you know, I'm very impressed with you on many levels. And uh, oh, you. you're a very interesting person. Actually, I, I'm not a big reader because I'm dyslexic and I find it very challenging. But I think I will make an effort to. Uh, well, Definitely read that. Yeah, but the other thing about it too, which is interesting, you mentioned that is that there's, I mean, it's also a picture book. It's also like a coffee table, so lots of pictures. Oh, cool. Of him in his past, and like I said, there is the there is the video component. Nice. So you can sort of, you know, you can kind of like at that level at least, you can say, okay, that's that's that. Oh, that's how he does that. If you were a drummer, for instance, so that's. Of interest, because I knew that not everybody reads music, you know, but they that's want true. to know what's going on. So that's why I want to make sure to offer that. You know, I don't even, I don't, I'm not sure how far these guys go if they do any audio books or anything. I'm not sure about that. I've, 
We'll see. Maybe. Maybe they'll want me to read the book, an audio book. Looking, yeah, well, that would be good. You, you have a good voice and you're very articulate, and that would be very a very good thing to hear yeah. uh, from you being, you know, primary uh, contributor to the book. Yeah, well, yeah, they'd probably have me do it. I just don't know if it's something that interests them because that gets another expense and a yeah. one, you know, because you got to get it. I mean, I could, I could probably rig my studio so that it sounds good. Yeah, definitely. But uh, it's still, you know, I still have to get paid for that. <laughs> like, it's still an expense, right? Yeah. Well, no, well, time is, time is an expense. Time is the most valuable thing we have. Exactly. And, and, and putting a price on it is almost impossible, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a commodity that we have that is very precious. Yeah. The other thing that you you queried me about uh, is the poster in the background. I was just looking at it while you were uh, saying, and there, that's the next thing I'm going to mention because yeah. it intrigues me. It is, I, I, I'm not an art critic or an art expert, but I know what I like, and I like that a lot. Well, well I, I'm not the artist, but it's kind of cool. It's yeah. very cool. So that was, uh, so in, uh, in 2000 and five, I was diagnosed with uh, systemic lupus, which is a, a little uncommon for men to get. It's usually a female issue. And not only- well, not to interrupt you, one of my best friends, who is a man, uh, almost died of lupus. Yeah. It's, it's so you're not the first person to tell me that, but you are only actually the second person to tell me that, which I, it's, it's, it's crazy how the world brings people around into your circle. So yeah, please tell me about that. Cause that must've been quite a journey. Yeah. Was he unaware that he had lupus for a while? Like a He was unaware. He just wasn't well. And then he went to the hospital and then they told him yeah. after, you know, some yeah. tests and so on that. Yeah. He, they had to put him in an induced, uh, Paralyze. You had to. They had to paralyze his lower body to help his body fight off the lupus. Oh, yeah. He yeah. Way advanced, obviously. Oh yeah, he was in the hospital for I don't know six months, a year. He oh, he, yeah. uh, he wasn't supposed to survive, to be honest with you, and that's why he's a special person in my life because he appreciates life like no other person I know. Yeah, I bet. Uh, he um, he's still suffering from it because he's had uh, multiple heart attacks and uh, surgeries for his heart, quadruple bypass. Uh, he's been amputated because of his diabetes is triggered by his lupus, and it's yeah. so. I'm very interested in hearing your your journey through that and and how you came about to be looking so healthy as you do today and alive and well and doing all these great things like writing a book and playing music and. Well, it's it's a it's a celebration, right? Yeah, yeah. So really, what happened was um, when I was in when I was in America, 
let's go back further than 2005. Yeah, I was, I was in America still. Uh, I was very, very busy, very busy. So being incredibly tired was, was common, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I did, I would get three hours of sleep. Plus my kids were being born. So, you know, so we all know how that goes. Yeah. Young kids and working and my wife worked. It was just a very exhausting time. We were young though. So, you know, we, we were young, so we could take it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just started to get, I was always sick, like really sick though. Really? Sick. And, and I'd go off to Europe or something, come back and I'd be sicker, you know, and ugh. Like one time I remember I had, I had a fever for like three weeks, like a, a low grade fever. Like it never went away. Okay. So stuff like that would happen. And, and also because you're young, you know, you kind of like whatever. You uh, brush it off. Yeah, yeah. You just keep going. And, um, so, but, but then we moved back to Canada after 9 11. Uh, and, uh, you know, then I started to get really sick. Like, can't get up off the couch sick. Mm-hmm. Like, 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 you know, mumbling my words, like, slurring, like, really busted. And I, I kept going to the doctors and just kept going to the doctor. And they're like, I don't know, I guess fatigue. They didn't really. Then this one, this one doctor, funny enough, poor guy, he was struggling with alcoholism. You know, I don't know, I don't know what happened to him, but I hope he did okay. But he was a very experienced doctor. Mm-hmm. I, I actually heard that I think he retired. Just, I think it was the pressure, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's anyway, a pressure job. He was hip enough to go, dude. I think you have lupus. Mm-hmm. And he wrote me up a. A requisition for blood work, specifically looking for that. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, boom. Yep, definitely. And the lupus, uh, what it was doing, because lupus is a essentially a, a disease, an autoimmune disease, mm-hmm. whereby your um, your system starts to your uh, what's it called? Well, the autoimmune system, you know, starts to attack itself. It thinks that your own body is the foreign object. Yeah. Like your immune system, like your immune system is like your guard, your soldiers that mm-hmm. help you stay healthy even when there's germs coming in. So, yeah, it takes care of the germs, but it becomes hyperactive and starts to eat away at your own tissue. Yeah. It could be anything. It could be your brain. It could be your muscles. It often shows up in your skin. That's where lupus traditionally shows up. It's like has this, this red patch on your face. I didn't get the red patch, but for me, it was destroying my kidneys. Oh, geez. So over the span of uh, about two, well, no, longer, geez. Um, yeah, with, from 2005 to 2013, it was a slow decline. My kidneys started to really plummet around 2010. It got very bad in 2011. And that's when I have to go on dialysis. So I was on hemodialysis for six months, like in 2011, 2012, and then peritoneal dialysis for another six months. And then, and luckily, and my wife, Julie, gave me her kidney. I had a transplant. God bless her. That's amazing. In 2013. Wow. And so uh, during that time, uh, a buddy of mine, a high school friend of mine, um, 
who I don't think Jamie knew, and and Andrew Mack. He uh, he knows a lot of people in the film industry and music industry. He used to work for Warner Brothers, and he had a, a friend, a mentor, up at Sheridan College, who was a great documentary film director, who was making his last documentary before retiring, and decided to use me as the subject. So, uh, long story short, they made a, a movie called State Aubrey, and that's the, the cinema poster for it. Wow. And it was. It's like, funny how I was drawn to that. <laughs> the moment you turned on your camera before the interview, actually, the other night, I actually, I, when we first had a post yeah. pre interview talk, uh, it just caught my eye and it. I, I was reassured about how much I liked it when I saw it this evening. So that's okay. it's funny how that just drew me into a an and I use the word amazing not in as a good way, but as in this a fantastic way. How what you went through and where you come out of it, and it's just it's a, yeah. the results are wonderful. Because so, you're still here to talk with us, and and we're having this conversation, and that's yeah. that's a blessing. I and mean, you know, I'm not a religious man, but I I do believe that we are blessed in many ways through whatever it is that does it. <laughs> right. You know. So the um so that that was a very uh, you know heartfelt project, and mm -hmm. it was it was on it was mostly a, a digital thing. We it was on um, Omni Television. For, mm. uh, for, well, geez, for about 10 years. It was on wow. television rotation. Also, it was online. And they just took it down recently, so you can't get it online and It's anymore. a short, it's like 45 minutes, but it sort of takes you through what me and my family were going through. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's one of those uh, tearjerker date night, happy ending kind of movies. <laughs> <laughs> it was well done. The uh, and and the funny thing I should make a note, you know, I'm I just had a, a kidney clinic uh, follow up just uh, yesterday. That's an ongoing thing, and uh, and my, my it's transplants are a funny thing. They save your life, but they're not a cure. Like just so everybody knows, uh, transplant buys time, and it's the best. It's like the Rolls Royce of treatments. You know, it's like the highest. Okay end of treatment you can get uh, to make you feel normal. And, and it's a miracle. I mean, a medical miracle, what they can do. But the kidney does wear out because all kidneys wear out. Yeah. Your kidney's wearing out right now. That's right. Everybody listening, your kidneys are wearing out. <laughs> it's just that it's, but they're wearing out much slower over the span okay. of the whole life, you know. You're probably at probably 60%. 50%, you know, somewhere in that. I know I put a lot of abuse in this carcass, so I, I might be worse <laughs> off than that. <laughs> well, put it this way. If, if it wasn't at least 30 to 40%, you would know about it because you, okay. you start to get sick. Well, I, I'm very blessed with uh, a good, strong fortitude, and, and I, I've been very lucky. Aside from arthritis, I'm, I'm a relatively healthy person. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so, and I'm thankful uh, for that. So I will be needing a new kidney. Yeah. Sooner than later, probably. Well, I'm I'm holding right now, and they said my function is stable, which is good. So I could last another two to three years, they figure. Okay, so this is this is close in the in the big scheme of things. Okay. Yeah. So you know, 
for all of those folks who love jazz drummers <laughs> who may want to cough up a kidney. Well, <laughs> get in touch. Not, that's a possibility because you never know where things go. You know, you could have uh, an acquaintance of an acquaintance of an acquaintance, and next thing you know, it saves your life. And that's that's uh, that's the beauty of the. I mean, it's yeah. a beautiful thing. I, I just you know, full disclosure is it's not a simple thing. No. And if you are seriously thinking of, of donating a kidney to me or anybody else, uh, just understand you're going to be out of commission for a few weeks. I can understand that. It must be uh, and, something. And, and to be honest, it's also not painless. I know I'm not selling this very well, <laughs> but I want to be honest. You know, it's, it's going to be a bit yeah. aggravating. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, but my wife did it and she's doing, she's, had no issues. She's doing great. Fantastic. Well, she's she's a she's a superhero in my world. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely for sure. So, so that was uh, that's what the poster is about. Stay Aubrey. Well, that's that's uh, it's it's amazing how a piece of artwork can create a conversation that is so deep and and profound as the one we just had. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I can see by the smile and the look in your eye that you're you're very you're very grateful. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Every every like I love birthdays. I like getting older because you know that's not. A I, gift. I just celebrated my fifty eighth, and I have to admit that. Oh, beautiful. Birthdays, uh, birthdays are they're they're good. They are great. Yeah. I mean, I I'm on, I come out of this far. Pretty much unscathed. I mean, I got a, I got a fake knee, and like I said, I have arthritis. But I mean, otherwise, I'm, you know, my heart's good, my liver's good. So you know, these these things you have to appreciate. And you, you have appreciate to be thankful that. in life. We have to be very thankful in life and be so grateful. Be thankful that you're able to get a fake knee. I mean, these are amazing things. It's amazing. I call myself the fifty thousand dollar man because that's apparently what it's worth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's just it's just an amazing it's amazing we're at live at a good time in terms of oh that. we are we are we are so so fortunate if it was a hundred years ago you and I probably wouldn't be talking like I I wouldn't survive right yeah I, I would be a crippled I mean that's basically like, an incredible pain and yeah. so it's it's a it's a beautiful thing and uh, yeah and also we live in a country for now that is helpful like it doesn't crush us to be sick to be sick. That's right. It is not a, it is not a, a, a devastating blow to our lives to be sick. Right. If, if we have the medicine, we have the the the, the system that that helps us. And there's a lot of places in the world where when you're sick, then you just got to count your days, you know. And that's sad, but that's the harsh reality of today's world. So hopefully we can hang on to it and keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so that's pretty much what's happening with me. You know, that's you in a nutshell, <laughs> more or less. <laughs> I'm sure we could talk for hours, though. I'm, you yeah. sound like you're such an interesting person, and you're you're so well spoken, and and so you're a very kind soul. And I, I, I have to, I, I, I've learned in my life you have to mention these things, you know, and uh-huh. and, and and I always finish my podcast by telling people like be nice to somebody because it's it's a it's a good thing. Like being good is and being nice and being thankful and grateful is a good thing. And you seem very grateful. I am. I am. I'm glad, glad to be here. I'm glad to be doing what I'm doing and just got to keep rolling. Right. Yeah. Got to keep rolling. So, um, 
Yeah, so, I think you have stuff. You you were telling me that you had a certain amount of time, and I hope I didn't take too much of your no, time this, this evening. This is beautiful. This is perfect. Okay, good, great. We're good. So uh, I think know. we'll wrap it up. And unless uh, actually, before I say that, I want to know: is there anything else you would like to share with us? Would you like to promote something and tell us about a website you have or something of that sort? Oh uh, yeah, so you can you know you can get me. Um, uh, one thing I do would like to share with you is that I, I also um, teach privately. Yes, that's and, nice. And I teach via Zoom. Okay. Uh, as well as in person if you have to be in the GTA. And mm-hmm. people, sometimes people even travel from afar to come and come to the studio, which is always the I, best. I can uh, see that happening with the talent. Uh, and I'll be putting links that you send me in the description. Okay. For your Spotify, for any of anything that you would want to have, any websites that will promote your your book or anything that uh, you can think of. So we'll take care of that in post production. Excellent. So yeah. So basically, check out the link. (laughs) Sounds like a plan. (laughs) All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up, and I'm gonna say thank you very much for joining me on this podcast. I and I, uh, I think you're an, an, a, a really, like I said before, a kind soul, and I appreciate uh, your time. Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate you asking me to come and do this. It's been fun. All right. So I'm basically going to say good night, everybody, or good morning, or good evening, whenever you're listening, because we have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to go, and I'm going to say thanks you for coming, and see you soon. Bye.